Okay, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you, as always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. Tonight, in the uh, wee hours of November 13th, 2021. And uh, tonight, I'm going to be ranting about uh, the new James Bond movie, No Time to Die. And, of course, because, you know... I'm me. I'm going to be talking about the politics of the movie. Now, immediately when I say the politics, people are going to think that I mean the, uh, you know, race and gender politics of the movie, about which more than enough has already been said. I'll have a little bit to say about that, but not very much. Basically, I'm going to be talking about the geopolitics of the movie, about which all too little has been said. And, you know, there is a, uh, or there was, a sense that the James Bond series had outlived its <clears throat> relevance, if we can use that word, with the end of the Cold War. And it's interesting that the Daniel Craig reboot of the series, which, in my opinion, breathed new life into it, began in 2006, just as the post-Cold War and post-9-11 rapprochement of East and West was beginning to erode. And now, of course, we find ourselves, unfortunately, in a full-blown new Cold War, again with both Russia and China, as was the case back when Ian Fleming was first writing the Bond novels. Okay, on the race and gender politics tip, I'll just point out that the movie pulled a total bait-and-switch by dropping hints before its release that Bond was going to be replaced as secret agent 007 by, heavens no, a black woman. <laughs> and the trailers actually featured her making all these humiliating, catty remarks to Bond. And this, of course, generated all of this online outrage from reactionary lugheads who felt betrayed by a capitulation to wokeness. And this, of course, was a lot of free publicity for the movie. But then they actually flipped, and it turned out that the, uh, in the movie, it turns out that the character Nomi, played by Lashana Lynch, actually returns the 007 codename back to Bond before the big finish at the end of the movie. And while they team up at the end, and she's ultimately a strong and favorable character, it still ends with her willingly accepting secondary status to the white male hero. But enough about that. A few other things to briefly say about the movie before we get to the meat of the discussion. Some favorable. First, the locations and the sets and the cinematography are amazing, especially the opening scenes in Matera, Italy. Simply unforgettable. The local chamber of commerce and the tourist board in Matera must certainly be very happy about this movie. <clears throat> I feel like packing up and going there myself. Uh, more importantly, uh, this movie was the last run for the Craig Bond and I think that the Daniel Craig reboot was a much-needed move for a series that had become entirely formulaic. And Craig, in addition to being the most plausible Bond since Sean Connery, 
was also the first Bond to actually undergo, perish the thought, character development, <laughs> to actually fall in love, get his heart broken, and to be fallible, and to recognize the unsavory aspects of his chosen profession. Again, much to the online anguish of reactionary lugheads who seem to have everything invested in hero-worshipping a cold-blooded, sexist, womanizing, hired killer for British imperialism. Okay, whatever. So, as the last one in the Craig reboot, this movie got a lot to live up to. And it came close, but it didn't quite make the cut, in my opinion. Now, we expect Bond movies to be completely unrealistic and full of plot holes. The Craig reboot brought the series a little bit down to earth, but that's not saying very much. Still, there are some things that you can suspend disbelief over, and some that you can't. And this film fails that test. Most critically, the motives of the villain are never clear, and it is never explained in any detail how he intends to execute his nefarious plan. Now, one of the ways that the film was unintentionally prescient is that, as we all know, it was produced pre-pandemic, and its release was postponed by a year due to the pandemic. And the key plot device concerns a mass biological warfare attack. And of course, in the, you know, the years since it was produced and, and, and when it was released, there's been all of this, you know, speculation and paranoia that COVID-19 could actually be a biological warfare agent produced by China or the United States or whoever. <clears throat> but in the movie, it is never explained why the villain wants to kill millions around the world or how he intends to deliver the genetically manipulated virus to his targets around the world. He has a personal vendetta, itself somewhat ambiguous, with the main female lead, I won't say Bond girl, because she's actually more than that, to the film's credit, Madeline Swan, played by Leia Seydoux. But how does it jump from wanting vengeance on her to wanting to commit mass genocide? Never explained. Now contrast the uh, 1995 Terry Gilliam movie, 12 Monkeys, which had the same plot device. And there, both the delivery method and the motive were made clear. The villain was a misanthropic Malthusian who had misguided environmentalist motives in wanting basically to wipe out the human race. Now, No Time to Die almost hints at a racist motive, because it is said that the virus can be programmed to target certain ethnicities, and one of the bad guys does allude to using it to wipe out populations for racist reasons. And here I will mention the Turner Diaries, the underground cult classic of the extremist racist right, in which the big climax at the end of the book, after the uh, neo-Nazis seize power in the United States, they use weapons of mass destruction to wipe out all of the Earth's non-white races. So, unfortunately, such ideas are in circulation among the world's real-life baddies. 
But the movie seems to be afraid to go there. And ultimately, so little was explained about the enemy's plan and motive that um, the big climax was bereft of suspense. Now, I'm not going to give away the surprise ending, though at this point, I'm sure that everybody knows anyway, and anyone who wanted to see the movie has already done so. But just to follow no spoilers protocol, I'll refrain. I'll just say that in the big finish at the end, where it is the final countdown to saving the world, the plot holes were too big for any real emotional investment, at least for me. Maybe I'm too rational about the whole thing. But uh, for me, I just couldn't uh, build up any emotional investment in the whole thing. And hence, there was no real suspense failure. For me, I think the end was a, was a flop, despite, you know, it's supposed to be so so poignant with the big, you know, surprise twist at the end. Uh, and I really felt kind of cheated and frustrated that they could spend all of these gazillions of dollars on extravagant sets and international locations and special effects, but they couldn't even expend the effort to come up with a minimally plausible plot. And this actually ties into the geopolitical angle. Now, I have to preface this discussion by pointing out something about the whole series, going all the way back to the Sean Connery days. In the Ian Fleming novels, which I've never read, but I've read enough about to be able to comment, the big enemy was Smersh, S-M-E-R-S-H, which was an actual real-life Russian counter-espionage agency, standing for death to spies in Russian. Whereas the movies took a kind of a detente approach, replacing Smirsch with a criminal organization not connected to the Russians or to any other government, Spectre, the unsubtly named Special Executive for Counterintelligence, Terrorism, Revenge, and Extortion. And in the movies, the enemy would either be Spectre or just a lone madman. In No Time to Die, you've actually got both. Spectre is a kind of a subsidiary antagonist, but the main bad guy is just a lone madman. Now, there have been plenty of Russian bad guys in the Bond movies, including in No Time to Die, in which one of the um, main villain's key collaborators is a Russian mad scientist. But he wasn't working for the Russian government. In fact, he started out working for the British government, albeit as a double agent. But not a double agent for Russia a double agent for this lone madman. And the Russian bad guys throughout the series have generally been subsidiary. Even in Die Another Day, in which the enemies are North Koreans, the main bad guy is a rogue North Korean officer who the North Korean regime actually tries to restrain. And often Bond has to team up with a Russian agent to fight the common enemy. And usually, surprise, surprise, she's a hot babe Russian agent, and they start out distrusting each other, but at the end, they wind up in the sack together. Of course, in The Spy Who Loved Me, the uh, KGB agent who played this role was um, played by Barbara Bach. And then there was uh, Tomorrow Never Dies, where the same thing happens with a Chinese secret agent played by the very impressive Michelle Yeoh. However, often, as in Tomorrow Never Dies and in No Time to Die, God, these names are so stupid, 
It is the threat of superpower conflict as a result of the bad guys' nefarious plans, which is a part of the plot. And Bond actually defuses world war as a part of saving the world at the end. Very detente, very Kissingerian, very balance of power politics, as opposed to, you know, the more unreconstructed, hardline, cold warrior politics of the Ian Fleming novels. Okay, and here we get to the geopolitical angle in No Time to Die, in which the lone madman has established his secret base where he is preparing his biological warfare agents in an abandoned Russian military outpost on a remote island in waters disputed by Russia and Japan. So a part of the race against time at the end is that they have to destroy this base before either the Russians or Japanese get wise to all of the commotion and blunder in militarily and start a war either with each other or Britain or both. And, you know, here is the kind of plot hole that, you know, is somewhat forgivable for a Bond movie because it is certainly not plausible that an evil madman could have taken over this island and built his big elaborate secret base there without either the Russians or Japanese getting wise to it long before the action in this movie happens. But let's forgive that and just give the movie credit for actually noting a real-life geopolitical dispute that all too few in the world are aware of, but could be a major flashpoint for world war in the not-too-distant future. And I'll start out by uh, mentioning something that, in fact, just happened. Amid all of the tensions over China's island-building activities in disputed waters of the South China Sea and the tensions over the uh, Taiwan Strait, last month, a joint Chinese and Russian naval flotilla of uh, 10 vessels completed a nearly full circle around the Japanese archipelago. On October 18th, the flotilla passed through the Sugaru Strait, located between Japan's main island of Honshu and Hokkaido to the north, which media accounts said was unprecedented. I've been unable to determine if either Russia or China had ever done it before, but certainly doing it jointly was unprecedented. Now, these are international waters, and they had the right to navigate through them under the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, UNCLOS, but it was still seen as a provocation by the Japanese self-defense forces, as they are somewhat euphemistically called, uh, uh, which were placed on alert by Tokyo. And there was also a flare-up of tensions over this same region back in um, September 2017, when North Korea, for the first time, fired a missile over Japanese land territory, specifically the northern island of Hokkaido. And this happened just as, uh, you know, the annual U.S.-South Korean military exercises were underway along the demilitarized zone. But also, as the United States was conducting joint exercises with Japanese forces on the island of Hokkaido, these exercises were dubbed Northern Viper, and involved uh, Japan's self-defense forces, troops, and U.S. Marines 
operating out of Misawa Air Base, the northernmost U.S. base in Japan, just across the Sugaru Strait from Hokkaido on the northern tip of Honshu. This was also unprecedented, marking the first joint U.S.-Japanese maneuvers on Hokkaido. Now, here's where we get to the James Bond angle. Just a week after the close of the Northern Viper exercises, Russia undertook its own exercises immediately to the north of Hokkaido, rehearsing for combat against amphibious landings on Sakhalin Island and the Kuril Islands. The drill was centered on Sakhalin's Uspanovsky training range, separated from Hokkaido only by the narrow strait known as La Perouse or La Perusa. And this is partly contested territory. The Soviet Union seized southern Sakhalin Island and the Kurils in the closing days of World War II in August 1945. But Japan maintains a claim to the four southernmost islands of the Kuril chain, which is obviously where the climax of the Bond movie was supposed to have been set. The dispute over these islands, called the Northern Territories in Japan, has prevented Moscow and Tokyo from ever signing a treaty to officially end their World War II hostilities. Okay, there was also a little flare-up over the Kuril Islands in the months after November 2010, when the uh, Russian president at that time was uh, Dmitry Medvedev. If you recall, that was when um, Putin and Medvedev were rotating in power, and uh, Putin was the prime minister, although he was obviously the real boss, and playing, you know, alpha to Medvedev's beta. So in November 2010, Medvedev, no doubt at Putin's suggestion, became the first Russian president to visit the contested archipelago. Medvedev's high-profile trip to Kunashir, the second largest of the four disputed islands, sparked both a regional military buildup and a diplomatic war of words. Tokyo's foreign minister boasted that some 7,500 Japanese nationals had volunteered to move to the Kurils to press their nation's claim to the islands. And amid all of this um, verbal sniping, Medvedev ordered the deployment of additional weapons to the islands, describing them as a strategic region of Russia, quote-unquote, and accusing Japan of a military buildup in Hokkaido. On February 7, 2011, Japan's Northern Territories Day, then-Prime Minister Naoto Kan told an official rally in Tokyo that Medvedev's visit was an unforgivable outrage, quote-unquote. February 7th was chosen to mark the signing of the 1855 Shimoda Treaty, under which Japan claims the four islands at issue, Kunashiri, or Kunashir to the Russians, Etorofu, or Iturup to the Russians, Shikotan, and the Habomai Rocks. The Kurils are a chain of 56 mostly uninhabited volcanic islands, extending for 1,200 kilometers from the southern tip of Russia's 
Kamchatka Peninsula to northeast Hokkaido. They guard the strategic Strait of La Perouse, linking the Sea of Japan to the Sea of Akatsk, as well as providing a line of defense between the Sea of Akatsk and the open Pacific Ocean. Russia has already built a military base on Shikotan Island, while also placing border forces on the other islands, which is why the Bond movie had to shoot those scenes in the Faroe Islands, which are Danish territory off of northern Scotland and comparatively uncontroversial. Although I must say that I find the current Franco-British sniping over post-Brexit fishing rights in the Channel Islands at the moment to be perversely amusing. The Kuril Islands, in addition to having a strategic location, hold vast mineral wealth with an estimated 160 million tons of natural gas. Moscow says the 1855 treaty that divided the Kurils between Russia and Japan has long since been nullified. Japan ceded Sakhalin Island to Russia in exchange for the entirety of the Kurils in the 1875 Treaty of St. Petersburg, but was nonetheless granted the southern half of Sakhalin under the Portsmouth Treaty that ended the 1904 Russo-Japanese War, which was a real humiliation for Russia, and Japan definitely got the better deal, gaining territory on Sakhalin without having to cede any other territory. So from Moscow's perspective, maybe Tokyo should just shut up already about the curls. But Moscow additionally claims that Japan officially recognized both Sakhalin and the curls as Soviet territory upon surrender in 1945, which strikes me as dubious because, as stated, there was never actually any peace treaty between them. The Japanese fleet that attacked Pearl Harbor in 1941, was assembled in the Kurils, which were also the scene of the last major combat of World War II in August 1945. Finally, I'll note that neither Russia nor Japan has expressed much interest in recognizing the territorial claims of the island's indigenous people, the Ainu. In 2019, Japan finally did pass a law officially recognizing the Ainu, who were native to Hokkaido, Sakhalin, and the Kurils alike, as an indigenous people, quote-unquote, affording them territorial rights under the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which Japan, unlike the United States, has signed. Russia, I will point out, is also a non-signatory to the UNDRIP, United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, but in the uh, initial vote on it in the General Assembly back in 2007, uh, Russia merely abstained as opposed to voting against it, as the United States did. But Japan's 2019 recognition of the Ainu as an indigenous people came after a shamefully long period of intransigence on the question, with post-war leaders up until that point, clinging to the dogma of the imperial era that Japan is an homogenous nation. A law was enacted in 1997 aimed at preserving Ainu culture and guaranteeing their human rights a century after 
the government introduced an assimilation policy that officially restricted the use of the Ainu language and practice of Ainu cultural traditions. That law in 1997 was Japan's first legislation acknowledging the existence of an ethnic minority, but it stopped short of acknowledging that the Ainu are an indigenous people. So it's good that there has been some long belated progress on this question in Japan. Now, whatever ambitions Japanese revanchists may nurture, Tokyo is unlikely to make an unprovoked grab for the Southern Kurils. So Putin's war games there seem a clear provocation and ritual humiliation of the Japanese. And I will also point out that for all of the oppression that the Ainu have faced in Japan, Moscow has never recognized their existence at all, leading to the near-complete erasure of their identity and culture in Russian territory. And I maintain that anti-war voices around the world should be demanding that the U.S., Japan, and Russia alike, and I'll also throw in China and North Korea, chill out with their provocations and recognize Ainu territorial rights either side of the international border. So, many thanks to the producers of No Time to Die for giving me an excuse to rant about the Coral Islands dispute. And if you are interested in a uh, sharp anarchist and indigenous take on geopolitics and political geography, please check out my website where I blog daily, Vortex. Dot org, and this podcast where I rant weekly on similar matters. This has been Bill Weinberg with The Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash countervortex. Join The Counter Vortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time. Like James Bond, Bill Weinberg will return. <laughs>